Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. Today I'm joined by a very special guest, a poet, author, meditator, teacher, and permanent student who is widely known through his pen name Young Pueblo, Diego Perez. Diego's writing focuses on how we can grow and change for the better, create healthy relationships, and come to truly know ourselves. He has an enormous audience online and is the best-selling author of several books, including Inward, Clarity and Connection, and his newest book, Lighter, which was recently released. So, Diego, thanks for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. I'm really happy to be here and excited for where our conversation will go. Yeah, same. I've been really looking forward to this. I've enjoyed your work for a long time. I first bumped into it on Instagram, as I would imagine Mm -hmm. many people do. And when I first encountered it, I just saw the pen name. I just saw Young Pueblo, which translates to young people in English. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what that name really meant to you and why you chose it. Yeah, it's a name that when my Instagram account was just a personal account Mm. and I signed on, I think in 2012, it just immediately came to me. And I think it resonated so deeply because it combines my Ecuadorianness with my Americanness. Yeah. And, um, you know, the word young and then Pueblo meaning people, like the masses of people. And once I started meditating, it really took on a deeper meaning when I started realizing how, how immature I was personally. And I've been studying mm. history all of my life. So when I started noticing how much I could grow, I started realizing, wow, like the whole world, like as a whole, we all have a lot of growing to do in front of us. It dawned on me specifically the example of when we as children enter school, like the first thing they teach us are the fundamental basics, right? Like how to clean up after ourselves, how to tell the truth, how to be kind to one another, how to share, how to not, you know, to not hit each other. And these are like fundamental building blocks of interpersonal relationships and society that like some of us may be able to do as individuals, but as a collective, like as a human collective, like we're talking all of humanity, we have not mastered these fundamental traits at all. One of the things that I really appreciate about your work is right there in your answer, which is how it brings together the very, very personal, your own personal background, your personal history, your journey as an individual, along with the collective. And so the advancement of the individual is an advancement of the collective and vice versa, right? What holds the individual back is what holds the group as a whole back. And if I made you kind of be diagnostic for a second, what do you think is holding most people back from the kind of growth that you're looking for? A lot of us as, in, as individuals, we don't quite realize that when when we feel tough emotions, like whether we've gone through traumatic events or not, a lot of those emotions accumulate in the mind and they mm. leave these imprints that basically set you up to repeat those same reactions over and over again. So the mind will look at a situation, it'll recognize how it's similar to whatever has happened in the past, and it'll bring forth the same reaction that occurred in the past. And this is something that became really clear to me when I started meditating Vipassana, that what I thought was my character was actually a large series of like blind habit patterns. (laughs) Series of adaptations, totally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and these habit patterns were not leading to my happiness. They were just leading Mm. to me dealing with tension and then creating more tension to try to put out a fire that actually needed water instead of more fire to deal with it. Mm. So I think for a lot of people, like we're all very different. Like we all have very different conditioning, very different emotional histories, but 
ultimately, I think a lot of the mechanics of the mind are similar, where we're like accumulating, but we need to find ways to release. We need to find ways to build not just the qualities that support living well and living happier lives, like being able to be in the present moment, being able to really hold space for another person, developing compassion and whatnot, but we need to find ways to deeply heal ourselves. So I think the large problem that we have is that we need to just embrace the fact that we all need healing. If you don't mind me asking, Diego, were there any patterns in particular that you struggled with when you were younger that you struggled to break? Oh yeah, totally. So Mm. a lot of my patterns, they sort of emerge from moving to the United States. So I Mm was born in Ecuador, in Guayaquil, and uh, my family, my mom and dad decided that we needed to move to the United States when I was about four years old. And ultimately, they totally made the right decision. But on the way to making the right decision, we went through a very difficult time landing in Boston and trying to build this new life. You know, we were, we essentially like immediately got stuck in a poverty trap. Mm. And experiencing such serious poverty in the United States was quite traumatizing. And that led to the development of a lot of patterns of fear, anxiety, and this like sort of scarcity mindset where Mm. like I knew there was never enough and I'd have to like try my best to work around it and do my best to, you know, fulfill my cravings as immediately as possible. And that all occurred very quietly while I was a child and in my teenage years. But when I got to university, that these habits sort of steamrolled and picked up like another sort of level of energy within my mind where they started dominating my actions. And it led to me developing these really nasty habits where I was like constantly partying, Mm. constantly just externalizing my attention. So I was always like with friends or Mm. smoking, just doing whatever I could to get away from any tough emotions that were happening inside of me. I think that in that story is is just a teaching that shows up often in psychology, uh, which is that our defenses, our coping mechanisms, whatever language you want to use, mm-hmm. our patterns, they come from places and they often exist for understandable reasons. Like you mm-hmm. developed a scarcity mindset maybe because mm-hmm. there was actual legitimate actual scarcity. scarcity. You know, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's not like just some kind of psychological phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. You were dealing with real problems and the system took understandable steps to, I know, girding itself up, doing whatever it needed to do in order to face those challenges, which apparently in your case was to become very consumptive or to look for something to avoid an emotion, whatever it might be. Yeah. And and I wonder, you know, from your perspective, what I've observed with the mind is that it really has this sort of first level survival framework Mm -hmm. where first and foremost, what it's going to do is do what it needs to survive. Mm-hmm. And I've found that, you know, with that being the thing that sort of coalesces the ego yeah. and sort of coalesces this like system of reactions. So it's like, mm-hmm. let me just be on defensive, on a defensive mode first, on the survival mode. And so survival mode will like help you overcome difficulties. It'll help you get from today to tomorrow. But a lot of that sort of feels very um, hunter gatherer You know, it just feels like it's based out of this like really old time. And now we live in these modern societies. And if I try to continue living in a survival mindset, Mm. I'm not going to be happy. Like I'm not going to feel any sort of satisfaction. And I'm always going to be finding danger where where there really may not be any. Yeah. The brain wants to keep you alive. It doesn't want to keep you happy. Yes. Wow. Really well said. 
yeah, it wants to keep you alive, but it doesn't want to keep you happy. And there's so much in our in our system patterning, in our psychology, in our brain, all of that, that to your point is designed for a different moment in time. Maybe it comes back to your pen name, you know, young people, where there are still these aspects of us that are very young mm-hmm. developmentally, whether mm-hmm. it's talking about the biological systems or just the developmental material that we carry around. We talk about IFS, internal family systems therapy, mm-hmm. all the mm-hmm. time on the podcast. And a big part of that is often about like connecting with those younger aspects of the self and sort of reaching back in time and trying to give them the nurturance that they needed back then in order to make mm. you a more full and complete and happy person these days uh, because you've investigated that material and you've unearthed it. And maybe some of those patterns that you were speaking to that were appropriate back then, because, you know, real scarcity, right. but might not be helping you out very much these days, you can kind of go back and investigate them more deeply. Wow, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, that line. Can you say it once more? It's uh, the mind wants to keep you alive, but not happy. Yeah, yeah. That's so the gold, brain wants to keep one. you alive, but it doesn't <laughs> want to keep you happy. Absolutely. So I know that a big part of your personal practice, how you investigate a lot of this, as you said, is through the lens of Vipassana meditation, a traditional mm-hmm. meditative practice. Were there moments along the path as you developed this practice where you had real insight into some of these patterns? And what were those like? Definitely. I mean, um, it was really such a powerful experience because I I grew up in a way where meditation wasn't common with Mm. the people around me. So when I heard about it through my friend Sam in college, he was traveling in India and ended up sort of stumbling across it pretty randomly. He was like staying with a family that where I think I think they had meditators in the family and they told him Mm. to to go check out this center. And then he showed up and I think he was able to do a course And what was shocking about it was that he wrote this email to us, to me and a few other friends about all about love, compassion, and goodwill. And I was so shocked because this was like, you know, the same person who like, I would like constantly be partying with and always trying to Mm, have fun mm -hmm. with and, you know, really like a dear, dear friend of mine, but I had never seen this side of him before. And it was so shocking. And I think that was the real shock for me too, was like when I started meditating, what I started realizing was that I would have all these immediate reactions that I was constantly sort of acting with aversion mm. whenever I felt anything anything tough in my body and or I would crave anything pleasurable. Like I, I had never seen that that distinctly. It was like taking my mind and sharpening it so that it would become more like a microscope mm. and being able mm-hmm. to you know elevate that awareness to such a level where it's like, oh, I've been dominated my whole life by these two main pillars of craving and aversion. And now I'm actually able to create more space so Mm. that I don't have to let them tell me what to do. (laughs) (laughs) It was funny because, you know, it started off really slowly where, you know, I left the first silent 10-day course and was like, whoa, like I feel a lot better but as I kept going back to courses and as I was, you know, over time when I started doing 20 day, 30 day, 45 day courses, the impact that that specific teaching had made, that that practice mm. had made was enormous. Like it's almost incalculable, like how, like mm. who I was before I started meditating, it feels like a totally different person. When people go through any kind of process of developing mindful attention, mindful awareness, meditation practice, whatever lens Mm -hmm. they're coming at it from, more spiritual or contemplative practice in general. It's typically a pretty long and slow process of development. And a major piece of it is what you're speaking to, how we can get some separation 
from what we think of as ourselves versus these mm -hmm. other forces that are pulling at us. And uh, then, you know, over time, even our view of the self itself can kind of lighten up and become more spacious. And maybe for some people who are very, very far along the path, even dissolve altogether in a kind of mm -hmm. beautiful way. Now, that doesn't happen overnight, but sometimes people have these specific moments of insight that really just stick mm -hmm. out to them in their memory. And no pressure, but I'm wondering if you've ever had any experiences <laughs> like that. I had some experiences in my sort of longer courses when I would when mm. I was first doing 30-day courses where it became distinctly, distinctly clear that what this is is nothing. It's like it's mm. just so crystally clear that my conception of Diego, this identity that I've been carrying around in my mind my entire life, it's fundamentally insubstantial. Mm. That it's just a massive series of rapidly changing wavelets that are arising and passing at incredibly rapid speeds. Mm. And to be able to feel that sort of like movement between mind and matter, where it's just like fluctuating so rapidly that there's really like, I can't honestly say that there's anything there. Mm. It's just change, right? And it's almost like, a, I don't know if you've ever read the Maha Satipatthana Sutta, which is the great discourse on the establishing of awareness, but there's yep. this part in it where it's like, and it's something, you know, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing. So it's something mm -hmm. where the Buddha is like, it's not you seeing change, but it's just change. It's just just change is happening. It's change as change. Mm. And that stuck with me. You know, when we, we have this uh, Satipatthana Sutta course in the Goenka tradition, where after you take a three, three 10 day courses, you can take a Satipatthana course where he like, mm. you meditate for eight days, 12 hours a day. But Goenka is like clearly, you know, going through this text and that didn't fundamentally make, you know, it, it, I understood it intellectually, but I really was able to feel it in the longer courses, like the 30-day courses where it was like, whoa, mm. the only thing happening here is change. But then it's funny because I think people may hear this and they think, what does that mean for daily life? And yeah. for daily life, what it does is, is it just takes the pressure out of it where you can understand that these two things are true. Like, yes, at the ultimate level, we're talking the ultimate level of reality, fundamentally your sense of ego, it's not real. It's not mm -hmm. fundamentally real. But at the conventional level, of course, Diego and Forrest are having a conversation right now. Yeah. And Diego and Forrest are going to do their best to treat each other well. Totally. That's just, you know, that's reality. Yeah. But both things are true. And being able to understand and take the weight out of this sense of Diego mm. is actually really helpful. So I can more easily just flow with what's happening. Totally. And God, I forget what conversation I was happening where this came up, but it was something we were talking about the nature of the self and getting to mm -hmm. a lot of what you were just, I think, summarized really beautifully there, actually. And I said something along the lines of like, it's very useful in order to conduct this interview for me to have a sense of self. <laughs> like I need yeah, to have right. a sense of Forrest and a sense of Diego <laughs> in order to perform my duties to the listener mm -hmm. here. But you can kind of have that while in the in the back of the theater, maybe. There's more of this ongoing sense of spaciousness around it. And just totally. being able to find that actually can support you in doing the everyday stuff. And I think a more a more free way as well. And it makes it easier too when you get caught up in your own narratives, right? When yeah, you're like, oh, sure. someone said something totally. about me and oh, that man. makes me so upset. And it's like me, 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 me. And then I'm like, oh, right, there's no me. It's all good. You know, it's, it's totally fine. <laughs> it does. It definitely helps you line up about stuff and take things a little bit less seriously. Like, that's yeah. for sure. For a lot of people, when they start contacting that, that sense of insubstantiality or, yep. 
or mm-hmm. openness, wh- whatever word you want to use, um, can be really destabilizing. And mm. uh, people even sometimes have moments on long-term meditation retreats where they have, I, I don't want to be really dramatic about it, but they have sort of a, a minor cognitive disruption, however you want to say mm-hmm. it, not like a psychotic mm-hmm. break or something like that, but mm-hmm. just a moment where everything gets really destabilized. And there can be a lot mm-hmm. of fear around that. For starters, was that ever true for you? Did you ever bump up into that insubstantiality and have some fear around it? And then the second part, like when you see people going through that process and they're really clinging to that very established sense of identity, is there anything that you recommend for people that tends to make it a little easier? You know, it's interesting. I, I've never been asked that before. And I hmm. um, what, I didn't receive it with fear. I received it with wow. Like I was more like, <laughs> I was just wowed by it. I was yeah. like, like I had a hunch that mm. this was true mm. and I had felt it. But, you know, there are times where insights sometimes need to be repeated for them to be matured. Mm. Mm. And there's like moments where it's like, whoa, like now it's like very deeply crystallizing in your being that this truth, you know, it's something that you can walk with and live with. But um, no, I've never received it with fear. It was more so like, um, it was almost like releasing shackles. Like it was just like, this is Mm. great. You know, this is fantastic. And with my sort of like fellow meditators, it's it's not something that we've really, you know, people don't really have trouble with that. It's more so like the trouble that, you know, I'm sort of blessed to be in a community with a lot of people who like live in a place where there are a bunch of meditators who are in their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. And, you know, people of all ages who've been doing this for decades. Mm, Pretty developed. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the struggle often is just managing our own emotions in a way where we're not projecting onto others. I think that's the common sort of conversation where it's like, you know, I can have equanimity in in good times, but can Mm. I have equanimity Mm. when things get tough so that I don't create disharmony? And I think that that's one of the big sort of topics of conversation so that we can support each other. Well, I got to say, Diego, I was not really planning on talking about this with you, but I'm glad that we found our <laughs> way here because I think that it really is in its own way, kind of the core of so much of what you write about. Mm-hmm. And it's reminding me of a, a section in your book that I think was actually my favorite part. It was just a very, very short section, a couple of paragraphs, maybe, where you talked about how people often mistake their first instinctive reaction to something with their Mm -hmm. quote-unquote authentic self. Yes. When that's just really their conditioned response. And true authenticity is what happens next, like whenever you have that moment of conditioned reaction. And I I just love that section, so I was wondering if there's anything else you wanted to add to it or anything that you've seen about that. Yeah, I mean, you summarized it really well. And it's mm. it's something that I felt like I had to see within myself a number of times before I was like, wait, what's happening here? Like, what is this? Yeah. Like, just feeling that like immediate reaction of fear and then or or feeling an immediate reaction of jealousy. And it's like, no, that's how I would have responded when I was like 20. Mm. You know, like this is like it really literally feels like the past trying to invite you to accept it back in and repeat it again. But then in reality, when you give yourself that moment, when you sort of add to that spaciousness in the mind, you realize you're like, oh, no, like I'm not threatened by this at all. You know, whatever Mm. the situation may be, there's no threat here. Actually, there's an opportunity for compassion here. And there's actually an opportunity for me to like line myself back up with how I genuinely want to show up in the present and it's something that's like, it's tough, right? It's sort of like, it's ideal. Like I'm always not, you know, I'm not able to get it right all the time. There's often, you know, times when I've like, I say something and I'm like, oh wait, whoa, my bad. Like I did not mean to say that and you apologize and whatnot. But 
But when you can catch yourself, it's beautiful because it allows you to to just move at your own speed. And that's something that, mm. you know, to be able to say no to your past, reaffirm your present, you need to be able to move at your own speed. Mm. And that's going to require probably you doing that multiple times a day. And um, just, you know, having that slight attention inward. So like at least like 15% of your attention is noticing the ups and downs of your emotions and your thought patterns and the other percent is out there dealing with the world. I love that phrase, say no to your past or say no to the past. Because mm-hmm. I just think that it's so, you know, so many of our reactions to other people are based on what's happened to us, not what's happening in this present moment. And obviously that's a very difficult thing to do to move beyond those responses and just come into now as now. And a lot of this is informed by the narratives and the stories that we tell about ourselves and those that we tell about other people. And a lot of the ones that were the hardest for me to untangle were the ones that I really believed about myself, but they came from somewhere else. Somebody told me that Forrest was a certain kind of way at some point, generally when I was a kid. And I internalized that as a part of of my own nature. Interesting. Yeah, 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 very much so. And I'm just wondering, you were talking about, you had a moment where you said something like, that felt like something that I would do when I was 20, or I would react mm-hmm. to that the way that I was mm-hmm. when I back then. And I'm just wondering, are there any stories about yourself that you're still working on these days? Oh, that's really, that's really interesting. I think, I think there was one time where I told myself the story that I was bad at receiving, right? That I was like good at giving and bad at receiving. Great. This is a great example. Yeah. And I think that was true for a while. You know, yeah, that, was, that totally. was definitely true because I would always be like really awkward at birthdays and like, you know, when all the sort of attentions like shining on me, I would like try to get out of the light. I I feel you here, Diego. On like yeah. a, on a and, deep, and that's, deep level, I feel you on here a deep with this level, one. Yeah, and, and that's also one of the reasons why I like you know made the name Young Pueblo and didn't use Diego Perez. Mm. I was like, let me let me sort of work here in the shadows a little bit. But I think I've been, I've gotten better at receiving. I'm not like a hundred percent at it because I I really enjoy giving. Yeah, but I think that's a story that like you know I gave a little too much power to that I'm working on sort of undoing right now. Mm. But I wanted to add to what you were saying, right? So like. I'm really careful with that. So like, I don't look too deeply into archetypes. Like I don't look too deeply into like numerology or like, I have a lot of respect. Like there are so many different modalities. I know these things are powerful and I know these things are like, you know, have weight to them, but I don't want to know that much about myself. Like, don't tell me about me, you know, like Mm. I'm going to figure it out. And cause I don't want, cause there's often times where there are these different sort of, I don't know, modalities that become really popular for a while. And they'll like, calculate you in some manner and they're like this is who you are personality typing systems yeah yeah, and and i've always kind of like i'd Mm. rather not know you know because like what i feel for me is that i'm like let me be a river and like right now this is maybe how i am and this may be how i score in this test or whatever it is totally who knows who i'm going to be in five years from now you know yeah no i i love that and i think you're totally right and it becomes a little bit of like a like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Yeah. Where enough sources of authority tell you that you are away, whether the authority is yeah. your parents when you're six or it's the the personality type calculator that your friend sets to you. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you just start relating to things through the lens of like, uh, my example for this is that I love the, the Enneagram, the personality typing system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love it. Great system. I really enjoy it. I love how evocative it is. 
But like, have I absolutely fallen into the trap of being like, oh, Forrest, that's such a sixth thing to do? Yes. Yes, I absolutely <laughs> have. Like, and, and I've had to like deliberately work to like, okay, yeah. don't let this framework that you have pollute your thinking too much or remove the ability to be flexible from you. That's funny. And I was really inspired a long time ago. I read the autobiography of a yogi by Yogananda. And hmm. there was something that Sri Yuktasar, um, Yogananda's teacher, I may be butchering the way I pronounce his name, but something that his teacher was telling him about how the stars and the moon, like they, they all affect us. But he, he was like wearing a specific type of band that was helping him live above that so that he wasn't dominated by the moons and the stars and he was able to be, be his own person. And eventually, mm. you know, you wouldn't need that when you were like fully liberated. And I think I'm so driven by the path. And like I came into meditation through wanting to feel better and seeking healing. And I was introduced to liberation through healing. So I take the, you know, the, the path that the Buddha lined out for the total eradication of suffering really seriously. So I know that the, you know, the moon and the stars and all these things and when I was born and et cetera, so forth, you just go on and on. Of course, all these things are factors and they affect you and, and whatnot. But ultimately, I'd rather just focus on developing equanimity. <laughs> yeah, totally. In all situations, in all, you know, yeah. <laughs> totally. No, it's, I mean, it's a great way to, to kind of slice the Gordian knot of suffering here, for sure. Yeah. One of the things you talk about in the book that just totally connects to this is uh, I believe that there's a chapter on emotional maturity, which you refer mm -hmm. to as just having a flexible sense of identity. And mm -hmm. I think for a lot of people, they just have a very rigid view of who they are and of what's possible for them and maybe what's possible for the world attached to that. And in order to change, it's really helpful to have a view of ourselves as being multiple in some of the ways that you're yeah. suggesting, like not as bound by whether it's the moon and the stars or the Enneagram system mm -hmm. or the whatever else, you know? And I'm wondering if you've, you've found anything that has helped you move into that sense of changeability or moldability? Definitely. A few things. Yeah. I think learning from direct experience that the mind is incredibly malleable. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't understand that. I never knew that before. Mm -hmm. And I always thought like, you know, I, I was raised in a way where people were proud of who they were and they were like, I'm going to be like this my whole life. Mm. And the flip side of that too was like, I was also, you know, raised in a culture where it was like, if you got sick or if you had some mental ailment or physical ailment, you were just going to have to deal with that for the rest of your life. And so when I actually yeah. went into meditating and I started, you know, this work of deconditioning the mind and my mind started changing rapidly, I was really impressed by that. I was shocked that it was even possible that I could feel better. So I think embracing the fact that the mind is malleable, that the way that your mind works right now, you know, it'll take effort, but you can train it in different directions. Like when I think of meditation, like meditation is just a mental gym. It's literally a mental gym. Like you're mm. just, you're taking yourself to that gym over and over to teach yourself how to be in the present moment, to teach yourself how to be aware, to, you know, like to just give you these qualities that were once weak and you're like actively trying to make them stronger. Mm. I think that, and also embracing impermanence, like embracing impermanence, not just at the, you know, through meditating, I'm able to embrace impermanence as an experiential thing. Like I'm actually able to feel impermanence, but even intellectually, you know, just reminding yourself that everything is constantly changing. Everything in it, and if, if you fight the flow of nature, it's gonna hurt. Like it's gonna be quite a struggle. Mm. So instead of fighting 
the flow of nature, embrace it, flow with it. Like you're changing at the atomic level, at the physical level, at the mental level. And when you understand that, then it'll make sense why your interests change, why you want to develop different hobbies. And that's okay. It's okay to be this sort of like ever-changing, flowing evolution. Yeah. Sometimes it's possible for people to increasingly contact that in themselves, but it can be hard to come to terms with that in other people, that other people are themselves <laughs> changing and unstable, and that uh, particularly in relationships, a big breakthrough moment for me was when I realized that my relationship with my with my partner, her name's Elizabeth, we've been together for five and a half years, something like that, mm -hmm. so it's a pretty established relationship, that I was in a relationship with a process, not a person. And that was a big deal for me to be like, oh, and to really wake up about. Is that something that you've had to do inside of your relationships ever, that you've had to come to terms with? Yeah, I mean, my wife and I, we've been together for a long time. Mm. It's been 15 years now, 15 years wow. together and yeah. seven years married. Mm. And we've both changed immensely during that time. Yeah. And it's been beautiful to witness because we'd rather be who we are now than who we were before. Because mm. when we were together, when we were, when we were younger, you know, before we started meditating, it was a definitely a chaotic relationship. There was no emotional maturity between the two of us. And we were constantly blaming each other and just not, you know, not knowing how to process our emotions at all. We just had, we had no, no teaching to rely on or so it, it has definitely changed a lot over time. And, and I think the deconditioning process is pretty real. Like you definitely still have like a character that you sort of work within, but your interests change tons mm -hmm. over time. And like, even like what you feel when you look at a tree or what you feel when you're talking to another person or like being able to listen, like there's so much that changes. And, and I see those changes in my wife because she's such a serious meditator as well. Mm. And it's been, been beautiful just sort of appreciating that whenever we go and sit a long course together, you know, we just sat a 45 day retreat at the beginning mm. of this year. And it was like, okay, when, when the retreat finishes, like, I don't know what we're going to watch together. Like, I don't know what we're going to want to see or like what we're going to yeah. want to do. Like, it's almost like you're meeting your best friend again. And it's like, hey, how do you feel? You feel good? Good. I feel good too. What are you into these days? Because like, mm -hmm. I don't even, you know, we don't even know because we just spent, we literally spent 450 plus hours continuously just burning away tons of garbage that was in the mind. Mm. That's a great way to put it. And yeah, I'm, I'm wondering just what your what your personal practice looks like these days, Diego, because we've talked about it a lot over the mm, course of the conversation. Yeah. Maybe we should dig into it a little bit. Sure, sure. So I meditate two hours a day. I meditate an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening. That's a lot of sitting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was funny. Um, I think when I, you know, as, as I kept going and as I kept meditating, like the results were so big mm -hmm. that I knew that I wanted to design my life around this. I wanted mm, to mm -hmm. really make the center point of my life because it was benefiting everything around me, you know, so immensely. Like, you know, it was fixing my relationship. It was helping me be a better son and a better brother, helping me be a better friend and helped me, you know, even like come in contact with the creative side of my life. Mm. So I started writing. So I knew I was like, uh, you know, this is, this is really important. I, I can never really lose sight of it. So I meditate, yeah, an hour in the morning, hour in the evening. And then what I try to do every year is when a new year comes, I lay out like when the courses are that I'm going to take. Mm. So 
I'll map out like, you know, when's, when am I going to set a long course and when will I do shorter courses and I'll have that set and then I'll do my work schedule around that. But that's, yeah, it's basically it. So I, you know, meditate daily Mm. and then also go to retreats a few times a year. That's really lovely. I mean, that's very serious practice. Yeah. I mean, the path of liberation requires right effort. Serious commitment. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Well said. Yeah. Did you feel freed creatively? by this practice as well, by this contemplative practice? Oh man, it was shocking. So, um, you know, I mean, I I meditate to free myself. Like I don't meditate Mm. to be a writer or to be a better writer at all. Mm. It's Mm. like a byproduct of that, like an externality that was like unforeseen. And I think this happens to a lot of people. I think it happens like, even if you're not a writer, if you're like a musician or if you're like a doctor or a lawyer, like you can just look at what you're doing and what you're trying to do. And you're able to do it like a little more efficiently or with a little Mm. more creativity. And it just so happened that with me, I was never interested in writing as an art, as in a form of art before. I was never like inclined towards that. Like when I was in college, I I was really thinking that I was going to be an investment banker. Wow, big pivot. Yeah, huge pivot. (laughs) (laughs) And um, when I started meditating, I think it was the, the end of my third course where I really just felt it from within. It was mm. like, man, I was like, just start writing. Like, start writing, see what happens. You know you're not totally healed. You definitely know you're not totally wise. Like, you got a long way to go. But write about the, the fact that healing is even possible. And I sort of, I chose to ignore that for about a year and a half. And then I mm. did start writing because it wouldn't go away. And then that's that's really where it began. You mentioned earlier in the conversation how maybe the pen name kind of gave you some psychic separation from your work essentially maybe oh, for freed sure. you yeah for yeah. a while and I, I i've seen that sometimes in other people like i'm thinking of like david bowie or sergeant peppers for the beatles whatever how like taking on a different kind of persona sometimes can free people to be their most their most creative and their most agent yeah i f- i found that it was at first at like an unconscious decision and mm. then i realized i was like oh i see the benefits of this like i can just yeah. say what i want And when I started, I didn't immediately tell like all my friends and family, like, this is what I'm doing and this is what I'm going to be doing for, you know, I want to really give this a lot of time. But it just, you know, it just started growing. And as it grew, I felt this flexibility to just develop my voice as a writer. I Mm. feel like that's that's um, like an important stage that a lot of writers kind of have to go through, which is like any writer can write about or any person can write about any topic that they want. And a lot has been written about all topics, right? But what you can provide is your own unique perspective, but your unique perspective has to be given a voice, right? Like Mm. a a specific sort of, you know, so that, so that your writing has this like unique quality to it. And that's what I ended up developing over like a three-year period on Mm. Instagram. And it felt really freeing to have that name Young Pueblo and, and just like, you know, play around and like, I'm going to write about this. I'm going to write about that. And, oh, I didn't that actually that piece sucked. That wasn't very good. So mm. let me like try again. And it's fine, you know, having that bit of space there where it wasn't like immediately attached to my name just allowed mm. me to practice like at a greater level. And and now that, you know, things have gotten a lot bigger and, you know, have these books out and whatnot, I think it's nice that I still get to live my personal life, you know, in a very calm manner. I'm going to ask you just a selfish question here out of my own curiosity. And it's sure. that uh, the podcast has been growing. And as the podcast has grown, as we've reached more and more people, I've felt more and more pressure and anxiety and stress related to 
wanting to do good work, wanting to serve the audience, but really maybe even more than that, it can feel like it's sort of like a boulder rolling down a hill, like a snowball rolling <laughs> down a hill and it just grows, it grows, it grows. And you want to like, feel like you're still able to run on top of the, on top of the snowball mm-hmm. as it rolls along. And I've just been experiencing some stress around that, basically, and some anxiety about the quality of my own work as the audience has grown, but the work has kind of just remained my work. I don't have a coherent question here. I'm just wondering, was that your experience at all? Because you grew to to huge numbers, like rather rapidly, Mm. so. Yeah, it's it's really tough. And I think it goes Mm. back to one of those lines, and I think it's the Bhagavad Gita, you know, about, about being detached from the work that you do. And it's really hard to do that, but I think it's the only way to stay fresh, right? Mm. To like keep doing it as if you were doing it when you were first going into it. Like similarly, like Jay-Z said something along these lines too, where he's like, treat your first like your last and your last like your first. Yeah. And like that line has always really stuck with me because it's really important to just one, not get lazy because you've already had so much success. And then two, create things that you still enjoy and just put them out there and don't look back. Like just, Mm. you know, like, and that's something that I've intentionally trained myself over time because I used to look a lot more at the analytics. Like I used to Mm. look a lot more at like, oh, what type of pieces, you know, do well? How am I saying this? How can I sort of like recreate this like thing that, you know, gets a lot of likes but that's too stressful. Like I'm literally like causing myself stress. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, I could not empathize more strongly. <laughs> and now I think um, like what I'm trying now is just like, let me just write things that um, that I really enjoy and that I think are good. And that my wife is also like, yeah, that's good. And, um, <laughs> and, and then put it out there and see if people also enjoy it too. But um, yeah. it's really tough not to look at the numbers. I think numbers are like, can really play with you. Yeah, you're you're speaking to my experience right now, Diego. Is kind of all mm-hmm. that I'll say about it. But uh, that's been that's been like a challenging part of things. And I, I mean, look, it, it could not be more of a first world problem to have. Totally. And I think that one of the the things you said there about both the first and the last line was great. That was a helpful reminder for me. So thank you, Jay Z. But uh, you know, <laughs> just in general, the idea of uh, continuing to work for you and mm-hmm. have them be pieces that you enjoy that you're sharing with people in that kind of a way and that can have a really beautiful energy about it there's an important thing i think that happens to a lot of like writers and podcasters and just people who put their you know things out on social media is that you eventually because you put so many things out you develop you get so much information right Mm -hmm. and that information your your mind will just quickly sort of sort it and you'll start understanding what a hit will be like you'll Mm -hmm. more understand you're more so and you know songwriters do this all the time like they have formulas for how to create a hit mm-hmm. and um, even down to like what beats to use, you know, and it's, it's important to not like fall into that 24 seven. Cause I think it's like just taking the root of what's popular and giving people what's popular over and over again, then like you just lose yourself. And um, yeah. I've had to like totally sort of check myself where it's, it's fine to occasionally, you know, intentionally write something that, you know, is going to be popular but it still has a taste of you in it. Hmm. But then at the same time, it's like, okay, dude, like write things that you feel are important. (laughs) Yeah. A major part of how you share, as we've talked about a couple of times during this conversation, is on Instagram, where you have Mm -hmm. millions of followers. And that is a fantastic platform for reaching people and for building a community. And obviously you're a very conscious guy. You have a very serious personal practice. And along the way, at the same time, probably the single most consistent recommendation that we've gotten from people I've talked to on the podcast is 
use social media less and you'll probably be a little bit happier. <laughs> and so I'm wondering what your relationship is with social media in general as such like a huge part of how you share, but also, you know, it's something that people have a lot of mixed views on these days. Yeah, I mean, I I think of social media, it's really, it's a tool. It's a tool for like the whole world to have a conversation with itself. And I think it's, in some ways, it's valuable to be a part of the conversation to like, you know, oh, yeah. share what you want to share, put your opinions out there. And I think in a lot of ways, it's like, a, it's moving history forward faster. <laughs> so oh, I think sure. there's a, a lot of things that have happened through the medium of social media that I don't think like Black Lives Matter is the Me Too movement, you know, like a lot of things can happen and, and they can happen for the negative or the positive. So it's quite powerful. So I think I agree. I think using it less is really valuable. But I set my timer for an hour and a half just because like I have to go on. That's where I post things and whatnot. So normally what I end up doing is I'll post in the morning mm-hmm. and then I'll put the phone down. I won't check what likes it has or anything like that. And then I'll pick it back up sometime like two hours later and put stories up mm. to sort of like let people know what I'm not what I'm personally up to in my personal like I, I never post anything about like what I'm doing daily but just like if I have an event coming up or if I you know I have something that I'm kind of letting people know about yeah of course and then I'll check back into it later that night to see like how everything was doing but other than that I try to stick to the timer as much as I can and I think it's really important to just not be overwhelmed by it because you don't want to become a scroll zombie. Like you don't want to just be like scrolling. And oh yeah, one thing that I've, you know, try to tell people a lot is you have to understand that whenever you consume information, it burns energy. Like every time mm-hmm. that you're like, you know, you're constantly sort of seeing these emails, you're seeing these messages, you're seeing these memes, you're seeing these videos, and you are just like burning so much energy. So be mindful of that. Like how much, how much of your attention do you want to give away? Mm, that's a great phrase. How much of your attention do you want to give away? Because one of the things that's a real focus of Rick's work is how do we use our attention? It's the same thing mm. in Buddhist practice, right? Mindful awareness. A lot of it is about the discipline of application of attention. Can, can I ask you? Mm-hmm. So I know that Rick has like, you know, a real strong connection with the Dalai Lama. And, but um, do you also practice in Tibetan traditions or do you practice like Burmese, like what do you what do you do? Mostly Theravadan. Oh, cool. So I have a, a much less rigorous personal practice than you do, but I sit fairly regularly. I sit on a more or less daily basis. For me, it's more like 15, 20 minutes mm-hmm. toward the beginning of the day. And then frankly, I use it a lot of the time either as a source of stress relief or when I'm going through a period in my life where I'm sensing a lot of anxiety and emotional tumult. Because I personally cool. lean more toward the anxiety, fear side of yeah. the spectrum and sadness mm-hmm. than the mm-hmm. anger, oppositional side of the spectrum. Oh, I'm the same way. Yeah. yeah. Like uh, anger is not the problem. It's like fear and anxiety and sadness. Yeah. <laughs> so, totally, totally. Yeah, right there with you. And so when I, I when I feel those emotions coming up in me in ways where where they're um God, this is hard to talk about. Not in, not like hard that I don't want to, but it's just hard to find the right words. I don't know. I don't know what you think about this, Diego. I'm kind of going out on a limb here, but sometimes I can find a really beautiful quality in an emotion like sadness, where mm-hmm. I don't mind just hanging out with that. I mean, it's not uncomfortable to hang out with that. I can just be in relationship with it in a way that feels really lovely. Because alongside that sadness, there's often an experience of of something that pulls me further into connection. Like you're you're yeah. missing somebody, or you've lost something, or there's something yeah. you wish for for others. And so there's this kind of like, I don't know, this this beautiful emotional undertone 
to what yeah, yeah. you might think of as a difficult experience. And like that, I don't mind so much, but it's when it becomes consuming that I'll start to practice around it. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think because a lot of these emotions, they're like bits of information, right? They're supposed to like inform us of something that we could be doing or something that mm. we did that, you know, we shouldn't have done and whatnot. And totally they can become overwhelming, but they can become, you know, oftentimes they can be really good signals. Like, mm. uh, like mm. I miss, I miss my sister. I should call her. You know, yeah. And, yeah. And I think the the thing that I try to do and I you know tell people it's like a really good quality to develop is that we I think a lot of times people think about healing as something that's intellectual. And um what I try to put out yeah. is that I think it's actually about feeling. Totally. I think healing really happens through your ability to feel and letting go happens through your ability to feel. And a lot of what you think you know, you're trying to let go of in the past, if you're actually able to be present and accept what's happening in the, you know, in the present moment, then you're going to be able to unload a lot of that heaviness from the past. It's really valuable to just be with the emotion, right? And if it's there, like, you know, you don't want to like push it down in any way. You don't want to try to fight it. You also Mm. don't want to like give it more power. So like if an emotion arises, it's totally fine to just be with it, like be Mm. with it. And if it's sadness, if it's anxiety or whatnot, like trying to sort of create that space in your mind so that you can be with the emotion without feeding it, I think is like really empowering. And mm. as long as we don't like attach ourselves to them and we don't like, oh, let me like keep feeling this sadness over and over again, but I'm going to watch it arise and pass away mm. just like everything else. Yeah. And just tying into what you were saying a second ago about we can get very cognitive about this whole process. There's oh, a gr- yeah. Yeah, there's a great line from, I, I forget who said it. I, I wish I could give proper attribution here. I think it was a female clinician that was 50, 60, 70 years ago, something like that. And the line was, the client doesn't need a new idea. They need a new experience. <laughs> and I think that that just, that is just such a beautiful circle of of so much stuff right there. It's really true. And it it even like, and it's funny, I'm glad that Western psychology is like really coming to terms with that. But I think similarly, the Buddhist teaching, like his great discovery was Vedana, you know, sensation, experience, Mm -hmm. feeling. He's like, oh, this is where I can cut the chain of suffering at the level of Vedana. We struggle because we don't know how to experience things. We just experience things in a way that we accumulate as opposed to just letting it be Mm. another changing situation something that we talk about all the time on the podcast and a favorite topic of mine is widening the space between the stimuli that come at us and our response Mm -hmm. to them. And I'm wondering if there are any practices that have particularly supported you in that. I think, I mean, mainly it's just, it's Vipassana for me, you know, like I've, that's been the main, my main practice. And I know, you know, we've talked a lot about it and I I want to make sure that the listener um, understands that like, there's a lot out there for you, a lot. I think we live in a really special time. Yeah. Like we live in a time where like there are literally millions of people out there all over the world who are actively trying to heal themselves. Like this conversation that started with worries about mental health, mm. it has evolved into this like healing movement. I think like this healing generation is emerging and that's really powerful because we haven't had that before mm. in history. So I really encourage people, you know, go out there and find something that works for you. So whether that's some form of therapy or whether it's some form of meditation, you know, there are like, there's serious forms of meditation, lighter forms, like there's just so much out there. It's just find Mm -hmm. something that works for you. But for me, you know, I feel fortunate. I found one thing and I've been sticking to it because it's like every time I go in, I just, I come back and I'm like, wow, like it's, it works. Yeah, (laughs) totally, totally. 
As we come toward the end here, there's a question that I sometimes like to ask guests. And I think that it's particularly appropriate given what we've talked about today and just with your personal background. If you could go back in time and talk to yourself as a, mm-hmm. as a young adult, I'm sort of having an intuitive sense of you, like 11 years old, something like that. Is there something that you would want to say to that person or something that you think that that person would really need to hear? Yeah, that it's, it's not always going to be this hard. That this is definitely, it's a, it's a tough situation that lasts for multiple years, but it's not always going to be this hard. And actually your family and you, you end up in a beautiful place. Hmm. And also I would tell my, I remember when I was about 11 years old, I was really worried that my parents weren't right for each other because they were always fighting. Hmm. But the problem that was happening wasn't that um, it was structural. The problem was totally structural because they were in this poverty trap and it was them trying to figure out how to pay rent, like how to get more groceries, like how to get, you know, get us clothes for school, like these basic things. It was such a struggle for them that they only had each other to be able to deal with this. And that caused a lot of friction Mm -hmm. between them. And it's funny seeing them now. It's beautiful seeing them now where, you know, my brother and I are grown up and we have, you know, our families and my little sister's all grown up and my parents don't have to pay for us anymore. They only have to take care of themselves and we give them support as well. Mm. And they, like, there's so much more harmony between them than before. And they're like, the love between them is so apparent. So, um, you know, I was worried about that when I was a little kid. I was like, wow, I was like, do these people like really, you know, are they right for each other? And I would tell myself that they, Mm. they really are. Yeah. That's really lovely. I mean, Diego, thanks so much for doing this today. This was just a wonderful conversation that I thoroughly enjoyed. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much. I feel like we're like uh, brothers, you know, I'm glad that we got to meet. (laughs) Yeah, very much the same. I mean, this was just like a total, a total pleasure. Talking with Diego today was just a really special experience for me personally. We had never met before we had this conversation, and it just felt like we clicked kind of from the start of it. And we explored so much material related to his work, his new book, Lighter, and his personal practice. And I started by asking him about his pen name, Young Pueblo, which is the name that he's known by through his books and also on Instagram, where he has a very large following. And that name translates to young people in English. And that name brings together his heritage, his family immigrated from Ecuador when he was quite young, and his view that humanity in general is kind of a young species where there are these basic things that we're taught as children, be kind to each other, share your toys, be honest, that we're not great at doing at a societal level yet. We're still kind of early in our development collectively. And then throughout the conversation, he laid out so clearly just this beautiful blueprint for what's holding us back, both individually and collectively, and then what we can do to work with it more effectively. And there were a few key things that he highlighted as areas of struggle and challenge for most people. One of them that we spent a lot of time talking about was the myth of the separate self. The idea that there is this coalesced version of Diego or of Forrest that exists independently, and it's very rigid, and it's always going to be the way that it is. And of course, if we look at that closely, if we really investigate it, we can see that that's just not true, that we are all ongoing processes rather than static persons. 
that we all have the ability to grow and change over time. We talked about so much during the conversation, and it was just flowing so beautifully that we kind of got away from my notes, which was a really fantastic experience, but makes it just a little bit harder to summarize here at the end. But some of the things that we talked about were his pen name and the influence of it, the ways in which it allowed him to feel safe and get a little bit of psychic separation from the work that he was doing out in front of so many people, and how it supported his creativity. We talked a lot about his personal practice, his meditative practice, and how that has really deepened his insight into himself, into his old patterns, his old stories, and the ways in which those have become a little untangled as time has gone on, and he can hold them a little bit more lightly. We talked about emotional maturity, which he defines as having a flexible sense of identity, viewing yourself as that changeable being rather than as a single rigid self. We also spend some time talking about his creative process and alongside that, how he interacts with social media. Diego's got a very serious practice. He is very engaged with personal development for himself and for others. And at the same time, we've had a lot of experts come on the podcast and say some version of, hey, social media can lead to a lot of unhappiness for people. So I was curious how he dealt with that in his own life. We also talked for a little while there about dealing with difficult emotions and about appreciating some of the aspects of what we often think of as difficult emotions like sadness or fear without getting totally entrapped by them. I hope you could already tell, but I just loved having this conversation with Diego today. He has a a presence about him that is just really wonderful, and it made him so easy to have a conversation with. And sometimes we'll have guests on the podcast where things just, you know, they feel a little bit more formal or impersonal. And that was so not the sense during this conversation. And I was really personally touched by by some of the things that Diego said at the end. So I would just like to thank him once again for appearing on the podcast. Again, his new book is Lighter. And if you're interested in following him on Instagram, he writes under the name Young Pueblo. If you've been enjoying the podcast, I would love it if you took a moment to subscribe to it through whatever platform you're listening to it right now on, and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast, and for the cost of just a few dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll receive a bunch of bonuses in return. Things like transcripts, ad-free versions of the episodes, and expanded show notes where I unpack our conversations in detail. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.